Hello, this is Volume 2 of the Feed the Ball Salon, brought to you courtesy of Golf Digest. I'm Derek Duncan. First of all, we hope everyone listening is safe and sound as we continue to distance and endure this strange time in human history. The purpose of this podcast is to take advantage of the time so many of us have off the road and in our homes, and to do something we might not ordinarily have the chance to do together. Most of all, Jim Urbina and I hope these salon conversations are enjoyable and can provide some small diversion for you. Our guest in this edition of The Salon is Bill Coor, a man who really needs no introduction. He and Ben Crenshaw and the team they work with have recently finished the sheep ranch at Bandon Dunes, which was set to open in June. They recently began groundwork at Cabot St. Lucia, the new development by Mike Kaiser and Ben Cowan Dewar from Cabot Links, and at some point soon, with any luck, they plan to commence building the second course at Tara Edi in New Zealand. The topic of our talk with Bill is greens, their shapes, and the way they function within the context of its whole, and even the context of the entire golf course. One quick production note, we didn't use our normal recording applications, so this talk was taped the old-fashioned analog way, via telephone. Bill is so strong in this discussion, however, you will not mind. So thank you for downloading and tuning into the project. Please post questions for Jim and our guests directly to me on Twitter, at FeedTheBall, or via email at Derek underscore Duncan at discovery.com. Now here's the discussion. You know, Derek, a lot of people know this quote when we're talking about greens, the conversation we had with Bill. And one of the quotes that really impressed me way back when was a quote by C.B. McDonald, the golf architect, who said, Greens to a golf course are what the face is to a portrait. A lot of people know that, Derek. A lot of people have discussed that. A lot of people have brought that out. But this is one thing that really captures my imagination and the difficulty sometimes of how you're thinking about how to create a green, what you're thinking about, what you're looking at, what the topography gives you. But this was a conversation between C.B. McDonald and Horace Hutchinson. And it goes like this. I quote, I know he impressed on me that the human mind could not devise undulations superior to those of nature, saying that if I wish to make undulations on the green, take a number of pebbles in my hand and drop them on a miniature space representing a putting green on a small scale, release them as they dropped onto the diagram, placing the undulations according to where they fall. So that quote tells me that all golf course architects, even today, sometimes struggle with a natural undulation. And Horace and Hutchinson telling McDonald that will just simply drop some pebbles and the randomness of that will dictate how to do the undulations. I thought that was interesting and, and something that sometimes you have to go back to what is random and how to emulate nature to the best of your ability. Yeah, and it. it capturing that randomness or representing that randomness doesn't even hasn't even seemed to be a goal throughout much of the 20th century architecture you know there was a, we got so far down this line of doing things scientifically almost and, and creating greens with very distinct pin placements and you know guys uh, mapping out con- green contours on paper or on, on computers and, and then i think that sense of artificiality works 
in certain environments and for a certain end product. Uh, but at the same time, it, it can also seem rather soulless and especially compared to, you know, the old greens that, that actually did reflect those again, random contours of nature. And, you know, you've seen some of McDonald and Rainer's greatest golf courses. Mm -hmm. They were creating the ideal holes or the template holes as some people call them, but they were still thinking of ways to make the undulations within those contours, the Eden, the short, the bare wrist, they were still trying to create these contours that were somewhat natural, but yet McDonald listening to Horace Hutchinson talk about how to create those undulations. I, I always capture that in my, in my thoughts and think, you know, I got to make sure that they're as natural as possible. You know, the work of McDonald better than I do. And he didn't build a, he didn't build very many courses. And then Seth Rayner really took over his business or that style. I don't know if his business, but that's definitely that style of design. Did McDonald ever try to, did he ever build a golf course that didn't use ideal holes? Anything that was more like McKinsey-esque and just working off the land and not going into it with a, a thought process or an end product in mind? Well, I think he always had the end product in mind. I, I, I honestly believe that because the golf courses, the, some of his greatest works, the National, Piping Rock, St. Louis Country Club, Yale Golf Club, Chicago Golf Club, it goes on and on and on. He was bringing that architecture from the UK to America. He really stepped up and amped up that style of design. But... Every so often, he was somewhat taken back by a landform that he was working with and or a style of, of, of golf hole that he was trying to capture. And when you go to the National Golf Links of America, I think of the holes like the Alps and the Leaven Hole and the Punch Bowl. Those were holes that in themselves were inspirations drawn from the ideal holes of the UK. But when you look at the third green at the National Golf Links of America, for example, I can't imagine that McDonald drew that green somewhere or copied that green from somewhere over in the UK and said, I got to bring it back to, to America. I think that he always drew inspiration from the natural features that were uh, on on the ground in and around the the holes that he was creating and 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 tried to create those natural undulations he always had one or two holes that he didn't really use as a template on almost every golf course he did and even though he did the alps at, at the national golf links of america when you look at the green itself it was like nothing I'd ever seen before, and certainly not like the 17th hole of Presswick, where he drew inspiration from. So I know that he was constantly working to inflect his ideas into the golf courses that he created. Yeah, and now that you're talking about that, the, the holes that immediately jump to my mind are at Yale, like the 10th hole and the 18th hole, where, I mean, that's <laughs> literally just <laughs> saying, like, I don't know what I can do with, with this land. I'm just going to work with it. And work with he he did. Yeah. And I even look at the first hole at Yale. Every time I think of a, of a style of a green that nobody's ever seen before, something that 
not nobody, but very few people have seen before. I always think of the first green at the Yale Golf Club, and I think, what was he thinking when he got to this green? Where did he drew inspiration from some golf course in the UK, the British Isles? I can't imagine that he did. And so I say that the first hole at Yale, unless somebody can correct me, was one of his most natural looking mm. holes and one that he didn't borrow from a template. Well, as you mentioned, Bill Corr is with us today on the podcast. And when we thought about talking to Bill, Jim and I decided that we would really kind of boil the conversation down and focus it on one subject just to kind of guide the conversation and, and give us a chance to, to examine it maybe a little more deeply and, and from a few more angles than we typically might. You know, and, and I know, Jim, you feel the same way. It's always a, a pleasure to be able to talk to Bill and spend time with him and, and hear his thoughts. And it got me thinking, you know, you've been you've known Bill Corr for uh, 25 years or more, and he's been such an undoubtedly influential figure in golf design during that time and even beyond that. I'm going to ask you, could you even imagine a parallel world in which Bill wasn't involved in golf design? Where would we be and what would that golf architecture world look like? You know, when, when I first went to the Sandhills of Nebraska, and just so you know, I, I made several trips doing, uh, doing some uh, some work for Mr. Young's cap at the time and and realizing that it was so close to my Denver home that I could drive up there and be there in, in a half a day and, and spend time just by myself, just walking around and, and hanging out and, and, and watching what these guys were doing because it reminded me of the days when the die sent me to Scotland and Ireland. And so, yes, 25 years, Sandhills, Bill Coor, Ben Crenshaw, they're very talented shapers, Dave Axland, Dan Proctor, Dick Young's captain, developer. When you ask that question about where would architecture be today, deep down in my heart, I believe, and I think I have told you this before, if there was no sand hills, I don't know that we would have taken off and done golf courses like the Bandon Dunes Resort or some of these other places these 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 style of golf course architecture that look for the best land and not just any land and so if it wasn't for bill and ben and mr dick young's cap finding this piece of land 25 years ago in the sand hills of, of nebraska and bill and ben applying that that unique style of architecture i'm not so sure that we would be enjoying the what I believe, and we've discussed this before, the style of architecture that has really been capturing that essence of golden age design in the modern flair. Gil Hans, I could go on and on, the number of people who have really enjoyed working on land like the Sandhills of Nebraska. And if it wasn't for Bill, and it wasn't for Ben, I'm not so sure architecture would be like it is today it's very possible in, in someone else's hands or even if bill and ben weren't who they were and didn't produce that golf course that project might have been a cautionary tale of failure something that didn't work and would forever dissuade owners and developers from trying endeavors like that rather than encourage them to do it as 
it encouraged Mike Kaiser. You know, that was something that showed him that it was possible to build a golf course on natural terrain in a place that was difficult to get to and be successful. So it, you're right. It's it's very, it's almost chilling to to think about what the world would be like in golf architecture without what they did. But their influence also was just not just Sandhills, but to me, it's also their method, the way they work. It's why they were successful at Sandhills in part. But the way they bring in their associates, the way they, they work slowly, the way they don't overthink it, the their methodology was such a a reaction against the hierarchical architectural computer-driven system that had really owned the day up until that point. So obviously Sandhills was, was a success, but also just them being who they are as people and, and the way they operate and the way they bring in their teams and work slowly and uh, gradually and carefully, that was as revolutionary as working on a site like Sandhills. Agreed with all of that. And, and, and I want to add another thing, a thing that is very important. I don't know if there is a drawing of any green or bunker at the Sandhills that said, uh, Dave Axton or Dan Proctor or Bill or Ben, when they shaped the golf course, they drew something out and said, you know, we should make it look like this. And so, yes, that, that style of architecture, build it in the ground. But really, you know what? That wasn't much different than what Pete was doing back in, in his day. And he did up to his, uh, his uh, passing. And Bill did work for Pete. And a lot of guys who work for Pete knew that they weren't going to see a drawing. <laughs> they weren't going to see it on a, on a blueprint and that they, they were going to work with Pete in the ground. And, and that's what Bill did. He worked with Pete in the ground. And that's what uh, Bill and Ben's talented shapers do. They work with Bill and Ben in the ground, working on the ground. No drawings, no sketches, no conceptuals. They just went out and built it. And I'm telling you that that ability not to be held to a, a style of design drawn on a piece of paper, that ability to go out there and stand on a piece of ground and say, I think that's what I'm going to do here today. I may change my mind at the end of the day, but to this morning when I come and look at this green, I thought about it overnight I think this is what I want to do. This is what I want to find and, and capture. Nobody was doing that to the best of my knowledge. Bill and Ben were not afraid of it. They convinced Mr. Young's cap that this is the way they want to build the Sandhills. And because the owner had the faith, he saw Bill and Ben and the talented shapers working diligently every day that that timeless piece of architecture, the Sandhills, was able to gain momentum and carry on to other architects now, and, well, back then and even now, carry them on and say, I have this idea, let me work with this. It's in the moment, like I told you. And because they weren't held to a document, well, gee, you said you were going to build it like this. This is what the rendering looks like. This is what the drawing looks like. Because they were never held to that, to the best of my knowledge, their creativity, their creativity was unfathomable. 
We talk about some of these topics that you brought up in the coming discussion, and I think we've kissed Bill's butt enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, Derek, that's that's an unbelievable statement you just meant to Bill Core kissing. But <laughs> you know what? I think he's going to buy me a soda or two, and, and it'll all be okay. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, cover for me, Jim. <laughs> Let's get right to our talk. Here's Jim Urbina and I talking to Bill Corr. I think I'd like to start us off, Bill, with a question. This is kind of the question that, that launched it all for, for Jim and I when we were thinking about this. It it came in on Twitter, and it's a simple question, but it's a quite complex one. And I, I'd like to pose this one to you first and, and get your thoughts and, and see if you have a way that you can address this. And the question is, are putting surfaces the most important part of golf design? Well, Derek, uh, I guess my first reaction would be I'm, I'm making the assumption here we're talking about putting services. We're talking about the uh, uh, both shapes, sizes, and uh, but primarily contours uh, and internally within the putting services. Would that be your? That's how your, I interpret the question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I think um, <laughs> it's pretty simple, uh, Derek. I guess in in any theoretical or hypothetical round of golf if it's uh let's just say it's par 72 then um, generally speaking half of the the theoretical shots played in a in a par round of 72 are on the putting surfaces so in that from that perspective uh putting surfaces uh, account for 50 percent of the game jim what's your take on that um, is I guess another way to look at the question is, do you have to emphasize the creation of your putting services to a greater degree than you think about other aspects of building a golf course? And I can't disagree with Bill. I really can't. I don't. I didn't look at it that way. I looked at it uh, in the sense of when you posed that question, I thought about the cost to build the green. And because it happens to be 18 of the most expensive parts of the golf course that I tend to spend a little more time in the creation of them. But Bill is absolutely correct. Half of the shots are going to occur on a putting surface that Bill and I create in an 18 hole round of golf. So in, the follow-up to that would be, are you looking for ways to make those sh- shots, those putts count more? Bill, and I'll, I'll put it out like this. I um, had Jeff Bradley on my show recently, and he made a comment that I thought was really interesting. We were talking about how um, you're, the way you build golf courses has become so, I guess, I don't know if popular is the right word, but it went from being kind of a niche thing in the field, building golf courses, design, build, lay of the land, the old way of building it, to really becoming something that a lot of people are embracing now. And Jeff made a comment that said that even though it's popular amongst people like myself and you and and Jim and those who are fans of that style of golf, there's a big section of the golfing population, you know, maybe the majority who aren't familiar with it, who haven't had a chance to play those types of golf courses. Or if they have, they view it as kind of difficult because putting is such a challenge on a lot of your golf courses. It's the greens that you create and shape 
or ask a little bit more from you as a player than your typical public course or you know the average course that maybe people grow up or learn the game on. So that seems like it's a it's a more of a point of emphasis for you and thinking that there it's half of the uh, number of shots perhaps that you would put more emphasis into creating interest in that side of the design. Well, I think without question that's true, Derek. I mean, we obviously we work very hard on routing. You know, analyzing property and trying to to get routings on on, on property that take advantage of the you know, what we perceive to be the best natural features uh, of the property for golf. After that set, the next thing that we work on more than any any other aspect is uh, are the greens and the green surrounds and the approaches leading to the greens, which we like Jim and like uh, numerous other people uh, in this business, we perceive the approaches, you know, the 30 yards short of the green into the green and surrounding the green to be part of the greens. And so uh, we do. We, we, we think there's so many shots occur in, in that area, uh, not just on the putting surface themselves, but just off the putting surface in the surrounds of the greens. And uh, that we feel like that um, we can work on detail in that area, and that detail can so influence the the interest of the holes and the interest of the entire golf course when they're put together collectively. But they, it can also um, so influence the strategies and the defense of the golf course against really good players. So we're we're very much into detail. And we really focus detail in that area. Mm-hmm. And Derek, I would add that I'll never forget this time, and I hope Bill doesn't mind me talking about this. I remember uh, sitting on the dune on the 14th hole at the Sandhills with his design partner, who I didn't know very well. And I told his design partner, I said, you know, I'd really like to meet Bill. <laughs> and his design partner said, well, my name's Ben Crenshaw. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> what about me? <laughs> I, I like, what about me? And he did it in a very laughing, joking way. And I know exactly what he meant, but I watched Bill on the 14th green at Sandhills work that Sampro and work that, that rake and, and getting those last little details in that top one inch of the sand. And I said to Ben, I said, uh, you think he's going to be a while? And he said, yeah, we should go walk around. Uh, he's going to be another couple hours. I'd love to know what that last inch at the Sandhills on the 14th green, what Bill was trying to do. Oh, Jim, it's uh, yeah, you're going back in time now. But uh, um, interesting enough, uh, most of the time, when when you or I or others who do the same are grading greens, we're really we're really working on um, internal contours within the greens and and making sure the drainage, the surface drainage works. Um, in that particular instance at the 14th at Sandhills, it's the smallest green on the course. It's it's tilted uh, quite a bit from the uh, top right to the lower left. And in that case, I was working on, like you say, literally like one-inch stuff that would help support pin placements down through the you know the body of that green, um, so it wouldn't just get too racy 
given the wind conditions and potential speeds of the greens, which, uh, uh, so that was, in that case, it wasn't so much on artistry, it was on function. And, um, uh, obviously there are different cases different than that, where you're actually working, uh, as much or more on artistry than you are, uh, you know, just absolute function. And I can't, I can't even begin to tell you, Derek, that function sometimes overrides strategy. And one of the things I looked, uh, I learned working on restoring Ellerson McKenzie courses is that he built a lot of his greens into hillsides. So he was working on function and slope. And that's the first time I'd ever heard uh, Bill, you describe working about how to slow that ball down from, from top to bottom. And, I've never forgotten, and Bill brought this up to me, Derek. One time, many years ago, I, I interviewed Press Maxwell. And Press Maxwell was uh, Perry Maxwell's son. Right. And Press Maxwell worked at Prairie Dunes and worked with his father at Augusta. And I, I'll never forget asking him one time, did you shoot the contours of your greens? <laughs> and what I mean by that was surveying. Did, did you survey your greens so you know what what percent of fall they were, what they were uh falling at and he said no jim uh i just looked at it uh from the green from the from the fairway uh and it looked right and so i left it and i'm wondering when bill was working on that last one inch at at sandhills it looked right for bill and so that meant it was good bill yeah I, i mean we're we're very much of that philosophy you know that you just described with mr maxwell uh jim um in the case of again the 14th green at the Sandhills, it's, it's a you know it's the shortest par five on the course, reachable to most uh, you know reasonably good players, and um, so it's it's well defended with some fairly deep bunkers. And in our case, we you know if it's something we're trying to look to see if 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 slope or certain tiny contours that help support or enable green positions uh, obviously we shoot great like everyone else we take uh, you know a laser transit out there and and shoot the percentage of grades down there to see to make sure what you're seeing is actually reality but uh, as much as we rely on that instrument we rely on our eyesight and um, we'll often get down into bunkers and if the bunker's deep enough, you, you don't have to squat down too much to get out <laughs> level to the putty turret. If it's a shallow bunker, you may have to really squat down. But we like to get down to see, to physically see the contours and the slope. And, and it, it's, yes, it's technical, it's mathematical. There are certain percentages of slope you know you're not going to want to exceed just for, uh, you know, particularly today's green speeds. But for us, that's only one element of the equation. The other is 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 looking at it and and knowing also what the prevailing winds are, knowing what the you know cert- circumstances are you're likely to encounter on any on that given green on the majority of days that you're gonna that you're gonna play. And so it's a it's a combination. But uh, uh, you mentioned you know McKenzie greens. Probably no one's ever done more uh, artistic greens than Alistair McKenzie, both in terms of shapes, sizes, contours, internal contours, 
and uh, they're just they're just absolutely fascinating. And I rather doubt that he or uh, uh, Harry Colt or any of the folks that uh, that they worked with Robert Hunter or them. I doubt they went out there and shot too many grades on those grains. I agree. <laughs> I agree totally. But they certainly looked at them. Now, in fairness to that statement, they weren't dealing with green speeds like we are today. And that's one of the questions we had posed to us, Bill, uh, a few weeks back. Derek and I, uh, a gentleman had asked about, you know, what is it, what is a reasonable green speed? And I said, well, I showed him, uh, I talked to Derek over the uh, podcast and said, green speeds in, in the 80s were seven and eight. And green speeds in the, in the, in 2000 were eights and nines. And today it's off the charts, Bill, what they do. And so take, for example, Kapalua. I love that golf course at Kapalua. You had to be conscious of the trade winds and how that affected uh, playing downhill or uphill. And it had to weigh on you heavily uh, how that wind was going to affect the ball. Well, it does, Jim. It does. It does everywhere. It certainly did at Coppola. It certainly in any windy site, Sandhills in particular. Um, you know, you're 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 working seaside courses most often. Um, you know, on the one hand, you might see situations um, that you that just seem to cry out for. Uh, uh, with more bold contours in the putting surfaces, and yet you know that the predominant wind uh, velocities and and consistency of winds uh, just just uh, you know as much as you might want to do the bolder contours, you think they just won't work. This is just not going to be either interesting or enjoyable to play under the conditions we're most likely going to to encounter here. So yeah, it's all it all goes together. It's all judgment calls, and and uh, I certainly agree, Jim, with what you said about the green speeds have been you know dramatically increasing, not just incrementally. And and Ben and I both we're I mean we're so old school, but. We're we're of the opinion. Uh, there's that cliche from all those decades, perhaps centuries ago. Uh, if you're not careful, you get the cart in front of the horse. And and uh, you know, which <laughs> we're of the opinion. If you can build artistic, interesting greens, the green speed should match the greens, not the contours of the greens match the green speeds. You you they've got to come together. But if you start out and say, we're going to have our greens putting at 12 and 13, you're at no contour. You're not going to have any contour in the green. Agreed. Agreed. That or it's going to be big shelves, big sweeping upward or downward movements to flat areas for shelves. And we don't particularly find that, that interesting. And if I may, Derek, and, and, and it's a regression in how I learned how to build greens. And correct me if I'm wrong, Bill. But I remember Pete talking to us about how we built greens in quadrants or making greens fall off one side and, and uh, maybe another direction or another side and having four or five distinct pinning areas. I can't imagine that uh, – I've stepped away from that a little bit. Uh, I use that as, as a guide, but I can't imagine building in beautiful, wonderful dune sites that you could think about a quadrant as being – 
something that you would hold to as 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 a rule of thumb. Oh, I agree totally, Jim. I mean, it's uh, you go to some of the most amazing greens on earth are at uh, you know certainly at Oakmont, but I, I was just instantly there thinking of Prairie Dunes, and you you go look at the. Uh, the, the greens at Prairie Dunes, the Perry Maxwell greens there, and the Press Maxwell greens on the other holes that he did at Prairie Dunes. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. And, and you look at them, and at first glance, you think there's not a pin placement on it. You know, there's no flat place, what appears to be flat, and yet they're all, they're pinnable areas uh, throughout the greens that uh, are so, but the pinnable areas aren't on big obviously manufactured shelves and flat spots. And so, because the greens flow together in terms of very much like the way you would see in a, in a sandy seaside site where the wind's blown sand. It blows it in different levels connected by different twists and turns as opposed to straight stair step or big sweeping uh, shelf. And uh, to us, those are still the most interesting greens. Some of the some of the some of the the very best greens that we've ever seen are the ones you look at and go, really? I wonder where they put the tins. And it, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't like you went out there and said, I've got to have X number of pins. Now, admittedly, if you're at a a, a golfing resort that's going to have lots of play, if you're at a municipal golf course, if you public golf, something that's going to have extreme numbers. Of rounds of play uh, throughout the year, you have to be absolutely cognizant of that. The need to provide, uh, you know, a big variety and of pinnable areas and as much pinnable areas possible. Now you go to the other extreme if you're going to to create a private club that's going to have more limited play and repeat play. Now you can really start to look at, uh, okay, these greens perhaps can be a bit more uh, um, less structured looking and, and, and more um, natural in their appearance and not have to require so, many, so much of the square footage to be pinnable. Bill, what you're describing as far as you know, building greens like that and the way you describe looking at a Perry Maxwell green, for instance, and not seeing any pin placements on it you you worked for pete die as well too he was the first person that kind of taught you this game is it safe to say that you evolved out of that style into the style that obviously you've evolved into what you're talking about you emulate those greens you appreciate that style i guess my question is you didn't take necessarily what pete taught you at least initially and how long did it take you to develop those skills to be able to build a green where you can look at it and not know where the pins are supposed to be. And it seems to be floating out there and have all this mysterious movements. Well, Derek, I think, um, you know, as Jim said, all of us, all of us who, who had the, the good fortune to work with Pete and Alice die. And, um, you know, we all learn different things. Um, I can't truthfully say that, uh, I learned as much about, uh, putting surfaces from Pete as I did more concepts of how, um, how to lay out holes and, and, and how, and how players thought and how, um, and how to do elements that are very, 
psychologically impactful to the players. Um, from a Greens uh, country perspective, I have to say my my influence more than more than the dice was having grown up and being able to play at Pinehurst, you know, number two course and all the other courses there and a lot of Ross courses with the crown greens and that sort of thing. And then being able to, um, in college, play at Old Town Club in Winston-Salem, which is Perry Maxwell, which uh, has, uh, uh, if not equal, uh, certainly almost equal, in terms of uh, interest of contouring to the greens at Prairie Dance, they're just so similar. And uh, so it was, I, I, you put all that together in the pot and you stir it around and you come out with just, you know, you, you take different things from different, different experiences. And, and uh, I think Ben's, Ben's the same, you know, he's quite these fabulous golf courses all over the world. Some of the most natural courses in the world. And, and he's a great believer in that uh, the detail is is so important, and particularly, like I said earlier, detail on and around the putting surfaces. And um, you know, of course, people people would say, "Of course, he is. He's maybe the best putter to ever live." He <laughs> <laughs> played. You know, I've heard this before. Ben's heard it. They say, "Oh, you guys do greens like that because you know because Ben's such a fabulous putter." Well, I, I'm sure there's some element to that, but it's really more because he and I both have just, uh, it's its just a sense of interest for golf that, that we've both gravitated toward. And we see players of all capabilities being um, both challenged, but at the same time uh, um, engaged in the in the shots that are around the greens that almost any player can hit. They don't have to be the best player in the world to hit a neat little chip shot or maybe even a neat little pitch or something or make a good putt or whatever the case is, something like that. Those those goals are attainable for all levels of players. And we just it's just another reason that we keep coming back to uh, uh to we just think that is you know, again, you've got routing, but then you have greens, and the greens and the surrounds are uh, probably the greatest single influence of, of any element of golf. And Bill, one time uh, uh, somebody had posed a question on on Derek's uh, podcast about what am I looking at when I'm looking at greens. Uh, he he watched me. Uh, spend some time at Rolling Green in, in, in the Philadelphia area. I go back what you said about Perry Maxwell. I love the ninth and 18th greens at Old Town Golf Club. Those inside rolls, I could walk and steady and look and imagine recreating that style of of, of uh, putting surface. You said that Prairie Dunes was an influence. Uh, you also mentioned about Old Town Golf Club being an influence. Those beautiful Maxwell inside roles. Does a Golden Age designer have more influence on you, or does the land have more influence on you? Well, I, I think the land has the initial influence, Jim. 
I mean, you, as you're walking property and you're trying to visualize how to lay out holes. And then, of course, as you well know, and Derek well knows, you come across situations of, man, this could be a beautiful green. God, what a green site this is. And it may not be connected to its hold yet, <laughs> but you just, you do come across those situations. And now, per, uh, I would, I guess I'd qualify that as saying when you see those situations naturally in the land, you're probably also reflecting on something you've seen before on one of those old classic courses, uh, some some concept or something that that now you're being reminded of as you see what you see on the on the ground, and um, so I think it's I think it's both. I think you uh, you know certainly we've all seen uh, such creative and interesting. Uh, situations uh for greens and around greens that uh that have become you know <laughs> indelibly imprinted i guess on our memories that we you know sometimes you see places and you really would like to find a, a time to try to do something like that and uh and once in a while it presents itself and other times you just see landforms out there uh, that are naturally there and you go man this if this is green um, once in a while you see a spot and just say, this has to be a green. More often than not, <laughs> yeah. more often than not, you see spots that you go, this is a really neat green if it's the green. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting, Derek, in our case, probably the most dramatic or boldly contoured greens that, that have occurred on any of our courses have been in situations where it was just given to us naturally. Where there was a green site there that you just go, wow, look at this. This could be a green. And, uh, you know, it's it's just a gift, likely. But as, it's not that I've tried to overanalyze or think about all our greens by any means, but generally some of the some of the ones with the bigger contours have been those gifts to us. And we say, this looks like interesting golf list, even though it's big, let's go with this. Right. I can think of the second green at the sand hills for anyone who's there with love oh, there. I yeah. love it. I sent you the picture. Remember that? Uh, yeah, what? you did. And, <laughs> and um, thank you for that, Jim, by the way. I love um, it. Derek, yeah. can I, can I jump in here real quick? I have to, I was playing the sand hills. I'm glad Bill brought this up. I was playing the sand hills, and it was a perfect sunlight, perfect evening. And that green just, it just came at me like a sucker punch, man. It was like, look at me. And I shot this photo, and I sent it to Bill, and I was so captivated by that look of that landform. And sorry to interrupt, but, man, I'm so glad you brought it up, Bill, because that was one of the photos I sent you because I was so enamored by it. Yeah, no, Jim, it's a, it's a fascinating green, and it was just there. Those landforms were there. We tried to massage them just enough to make it playable. Uh, I could say the same thing for the seventh green, R5, that fires it. It was just there, just like it is. People look at it now, and they go, what the hell? What were you thinking? <laughs> well, I was thinking, I walked up here in the dunes and looked at that, and it was just there, and kind of drug my foot around it and said, I think we could play golf on this. I know it's big. I know it's dramatic. But in the setting where it is and on the golf hole where it is, you know, it, it just, it could work. And so it was a gift. Um, the fifth green, the fifth green, abandoned trails. 
You know, I was, which, I was oh, just going to oh, ask oh, you about that. Love it. Love yeah. it. The fifth green on the little par three there yeah. with the big cross through the middle of it. Derek, I mean, I walked out through there. The, one of the first times I walked out through, and I'm walking through what we call the meadow, which is that little beautiful vegetated area there where five and 17 those holes are. Mm-hmm. And I just walked through. I just happened to walk by there, and I looked at this, and I go, wow, there's a green here. You know, how are we good? Well, this is this is just an absolute gift. We'll just work on it enough just to try to make it pinnable and function. And so those happen. And obviously you have the other kinds too, where you, you, there's nothing that the ground necessarily, or the, the green site that you've chosen, uh, the green site's more dictated by the lay of the land leading to the green. And you just say, what are we going to do here? Let's create something. And, uh, Anyway, I could ramble on about that for well, a minute. Like on that topic, I'd like to ask you about two specific greens that seem that they might be in that category. And the the first is the 16th green at Streamsong Red, the long par three over the the little uh, pond, I guess you, lagoon, and and 17 at at Sand Valley. That those look. I don't know. Maybe you did find something natural there, but they they would appear to the to the uh, amateur eye that that was a, an opportunity to get creative. Well, you're right, Derek. They both they both were. Sixteen at the at Stream Song was um, um, quite frankly, we we were looking for a way to get across over there. And um, uh, Tom, Jim's good friend, Tom, who was, who was building, who was Jim's partner for all those years. He, he they were they were out there building their course at the same time. And uh, I'd actually looked, Ben and I both had looked at building a part three where Tom's seventh hole is. It plays across the same body of water. And then, but we got kind of dead-ended when we got over. We didn't know where to go. And so we kind of slid down the lake, so to speak, and got on the left side of that big dune that's behind Tom's green. And thought, well, this is not nearly as interesting a natural site, but if we level some a little bit, and then we start looking at it and go, you know, this is kind of a, a maybe a kind of a weird thing, but it's it looks like a beer it. You know, the green with the level at the front and the great trough, almost a trench, a valley through going horizontally through the middle, and then another pinnable area up at the back. And, and it, this was one of those situations, Derek, where you, you just go, uh, uh, this could work here. And it connects our holes because we were, to be perfectly candid, that hole was built to get from 15 to 17 because mm-hmm. 15 and 17 were on the ground naturally there. And and yet when we looked at it, we thought we've been given a good opportunity here. And, you know, it's a, it's a public uh, golf resort. Perhaps not too many people coming here will have seen uh, you know, a beer rich hole, a hole like that, and they may consider it to be uh, fantastic or they may consider it to be goofy, but it's something that's proven to work before and it would work for us here. So uh, I remember going over there with Jimbo Wright, who, you know, did so so many of those fabulous greens at Streams on and so many at Sand Hills and all these other places we work, but stand there with Jimbo and Jimbo. You know, he's, a, he's, an, he's an avid golfer, but he had 
he was not familiar at that point in time with the term of a be a rich green. And, and he goes, I said, Jimbo, we might just build, build a big pure rich here. And, and he, I remember him looking at me, he goes, we're going to build a hole here. <laughs> I said, well, I mean, we've got to get from here to there. We got to link this together. So I think you could build some. And he just said, well, what's a pure rich? I said, Jimbo, if you build a like a small green big enough to hit a shot to from across the lake here at the front, and then you build another one way back here about 50 yards further back here, and then connect them with a great big valley. And I remember him looking and he goes, what? He goes, and then he stood there for a minute and he goes, that might be fun, you know, <laughs> and and he built it. And he built it. <laughs> I don't know that Jimbo, he had seen the green at number five at Bannon Trails because he worked there, but he's not the one who actually worked on that green. So, uh, you know, he had a sense of what was going to happen. But once he got into it and started working on it, uh, I just remember going over there after he had, uh, you know, he, he just said, I, I have something rough in here we can go look at. And, then I both went by there and just looked and I go, it's done. That's it. Walk on. And, um, you know, obviously we graded on just slightly the same pro, but uh, it's it's just a, it's, it's one of those situations, Derek, that was, in that case, it was a way to get from one spot to another. And 17 at the Sand, at the sand Valley, on the other hand, was similar in the sense that we knew where we wanted the 16th hole to go and we knew where we wanted the 18th hole to be and in between was this you know kind of a nice teen ground area and then a valley and then the big dune up over there and originally we were talking about building the green on the on the tee side of the big dune and we thought well we've got a few of those you know where there's a, a green set against the dune and then um, in this case, we walked over there and walked over behind uh, the big dune, and there's a huge hole back there. And we go, hmm, well, Mike, I mean, Mike Kaiser, he kind of likes quirky things. You know, he's into old world golf. He might just go for this if we propose to put the green instead of on top of the dune or in the face of the dune. We might just build it over in the big hole. Uh, behind the dune, which would connect us beautifully to where we envisioned 18 T's be. And Mike came out and said, go for it. I'm in. So that's how that happened. If if you'd had a different owner, Derek, who had been much more, uh, uh, their golf perceptions might be more uh, stereotyped, uh, that hole wouldn't exist. And you know what, Derek, when you talk about you know, situations like the 16th at Stream Song or, or Sand Valley, I tend to look at greens as being uh, a function of, of, of their purpose in the rowdy. But one of the things that always struck me, and, I, and I've been dying to ask this to Bill, I hope this is the right time. Bill, when you looked at the second green at the Sand Hills and the, and the fifth at, at, uh, at uh, the Trails course, and now one of my new favorite Coor and Crenshaw Greens, the eighth at the Sheep Ranch. Does your mind change on the surface of the green and what you would do with it if you have bunkers or no bunkers, or does it is it irrelevant? 
Well, I think, Jim, it does change. I mean, if you've got bunkers, you basically have framework, you know, for the edges of the green being the bunkers. Um, if you don't have bunkers, uh, say like the eighth green at, uh, at Sheep Ranch, you're referring to the, the contours that are either on the green can flow off the green or the contours that are off the green flow onto the green and you unify it and tie it all in. Um, so I think it, I think you're right. I've never thought about it that way, but I think you're right. Uh, um, often a lot of greens that have bunkers adjacent to them, um, you know, the bunkers define the edges and even the contours in that area. And then you may have the, you know, the, the roll-offs or the, or the tie-ins or the contouring, you know, both on the putting surfaces and off in other places where the bunkers aren't. But, uh, yeah, that's a prime example. That green happened actually walking out through there. There was a hint of a shelf uh, right there where I'm sure you're thinking about the big roll is yes. right at the front of the green. Yes, there I was, love it. I love yeah. it. There was a hint of a shelf right there. There was a kind of a dip in behind it, and then another, you know, we're talking stuff a foot high maybe, that was in the natural sand there, in the natural ground. And I just looked at it and thought, okay, what kind of hole are we building here? And as usual, you know, we're just kind of looking for help, man. We're just, you know, guidance. <laughs> and, you know, you run out of ideas. And, and, uh, and, just looking at it, and <laughs> there, there it was. If you you could have walked by it a hundred times, I guess. But uh, uh, I just thought this could be a green. This could be a green. So we we magnified the contours, you know, significantly. But keeping keeping basically the idea that we found naturally right there on that on that ground. Um, and we do that a lot, Jim. I mean, we do it a lot. We try to look. I, I'm so often reminded that a guy that you you may have talked to, or uh, if not, you should, uh, Rod Whitman, the Canadian architect. Yeah, Jim the great wit. Very well. Oh, yeah. very well. Yeah. And, and Rod, great man. Rod had one of the great comments I've ever heard, and it could apply to so many things in life, but it certainly applies to what we are just talking about as you – as you walk through property and as you as you're trying to analyze it, you if you're not careful, you can look right past things. Or you can walk past them numerous times and not see them. And yet sometimes there's guidance and there's there there's things little little indicators all over that tell you what could be interesting and different and it's natural as opposed to some concept that's been you know, created artificially. And Rod, <laughs> I remember walking with Rod one day, and we were with some folks, and and uh, Rod at one point looks at me and he goes, he looks, but he does not see. <laughs> referring, referring to some one of the guys that we were with. <laughs> and you think about that. Yep. So often, we all look, but we don't see. Yeah, yeah. And... I can honestly say, Derek, that, uh, and Bill could correct me if I'm wrong, I have never seen a green like the 8th at Sheep Ranch. So, you, haven't, you haven't pulled that one out. <laughs> well, and, and, and Jim and Fairness, I don't know that we would have ever thought of that green. 
if it had not been literally just standing there, you're standing there. You know how this goes. You, know, you yep. stand there and you go, there's got to be a green here because we got to get to here. It wasn't like there was a green there that we said, we've got to get to this green. It's that we had to get the eighth hole because we were focusing more on the ninth hole coming back to the ocean. Yes. And the ninth, ninth hole was more defined. So we're going, we're going, we got to get a green somewhere in this area. And you just stand there and at first you look at it, well, there's nothing here. We can do whatever. And then you start looking and you go, well, you know, there is actually something here. And if you magnify these natural concerts, this might be interesting for golf. And as Lord knows, it's different. And uh, and it's one of those greens, Jim, that people will either become extremely enamored of or hate violently. <laughs> <laughs> or one one day and the other the next. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jim, I'd like to ask you, Jim, what's the most natural green setting you've ever come across in your travels? Uh, Bill just described the eighth at Sheep Ranch and the the, the the discovery moment. Did you have you had those before? Oh, thousands of times, and and thankfully, thankfully, we've had wonderful pieces of land to work with. I've had the fortunate chance to to walk ground like Pacific Dunes and walk ground like Old MacDonald and walk ground like Sabonic and many other sites that I've looked with, with Mr. Kaiser and, and Michael Kaiser, as a matter of fact. So I have had those opportunities. One of the most enjoyable greens that I've ever had a chance to barely touch, barely touch is the uh, 16th green at Pacific Dunes. I mean, if you want to talk about a hole that was there, you you wouldn't have touched an ounce of, of sand to make it happen. Or when you look at the, the second green at Pacific Dunes, uh, you just see those things and they pop out at you. But I wouldn't have had that ability to recognize that, as Rod Whitman has said and Bill so eloquently pointed out, I wouldn't have had that chance to recognize what was there if I had not studied the lynx lands of Scotland and Ireland. So I've been very lucky to recognize what's there. One of the things I always talk about with people is that you don't want to mess, and Bill may agree or disagree, I'm not sure, I think he would agree, that you don't want to mess with the ground until you're sure, you're absolutely sure that you want to go in a different direction. And so when I saw for the first time the landform uh, of the uh, 16th Green of Pacific Dunes, I was like, oh, come on, it can't get any better than this. Or uh, or you look at the landform around the 7th of Pacific Dunes, and, and the list goes on and on and on. If I didn't have a chance to walk the lynx lands of Scotland and Ireland, if I didn't have the chance, and this is, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Bill. If I didn't have the chance to walk the sand hills before you guys had really started putting that, that those final touches in and recognize what what the potential was, as Rod Whitman would see, you have to know what you're looking for, then I wouldn't have experienced that. And so I'm always very careful that I start disturbing that land. I watched Bill mess around with the fifth green at Andon Trails. I watched him. 
uh, I, I saw him just barely touching the sand here and barely touching the sand there. And so even in Bill's earliest days, the sand hills and other places that he worked at, I realized that I have to be cautious. Be careful when you touch it. Be careful when you think about putting a bunker in it. Be careful when you want to lower it a couple, two tenths, three tenths, because they may not come back to to what you want them to be. And I've been very lucky. I have other sites that I'm looking at that I, I'm dying to show Bill Coor this one site and say, look at these green sites. Can you believe it? Do they need bunkers? And And that's why I asked Bill, does it change his way of, uh, of looking at a green site when he thinks of whether it needs a bunker or not? Would he change the undulations? Would he change the landform? And I'm very lucky to be a part of that. And that's why asking Bill today, would he change it? And he said, I probably wouldn't. Bill, you probably wouldn't change it. Yeah, I think that's correct, Jim. I think that's correct. When you're given something that is inherently interesting for golf, um, you know, one of the great temptations is to to do too much with it and over embellish it. And uh, you know, sometimes the best thing you can do is to do as little as possible. So it's uh, it's all judgment calls, Derek. That's what it is. It just comes down to, and we would what Jim I think is, is so always referring to too, and and I was that uh, they're just. They're just different situations. They're all different. There are times you have to come up with a concept. There are times that you that you have to create something out of nothing. But there are other times it's right in front of you. Sometimes it's obvious, as Jim said. Sometimes, like the eighth green at the sheep ranch, it's not. But it's there. They're they're you know they're little guideposts all along. If it's an interesting site to start with. Now, if it's a if it's a site devoid of interest or so severe in terms of elevation change or that sort of thing, um, then that's a whole other thing. Then pretty soon you start to um, fit fit the ground to your concept, your preconceived concept of what the golf ought to be. What Jim and I are both referring to uh, today specifically are sites that are. Uh, gifted for golf naturally and um, that's a fair statement bill fair yeah, statement they provide they provide the guidance instead of uh, let the land dictate the golf course instead of uh, altering the land to fit a, a concept as a way to maybe kind of wrap up this fascinating conversation i'd like to ask each of you and this is piggybacks on what you're just saying bill i'd like to ask each of you each of you what are the projects that you found it the most difficult to either find green locations or, or build greens. And I imagine, you know, Bill, if you're looking at talking stick, you know, there are not a lot of found green locations there. I'm guessing that's a project where you can kind of go in and create maybe Trinity forest, you know, ahead of time, you're going to be creating most of those, but have you had experiences where you've got pretty decent land, but you're just, you're, you're struggling to get the greens fit. Um, Yes, uh, Derek, without question. I mean, there are some, as you refer to talking stick, which is, you know, there was not a green site or anything, other thing sort of guidance <laughs> out there. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, you you often, so often, 
you find interesting pieces of land that that um, lend themselves to the. You, you can visualize how golf holes roll over the landforms, and yet when you get to the, there might be an area that just says, "Oh well, the green's going to be somewhere in this area." Maybe that's defined by you know uh, surrounding or backdropping contours, or even vegetation, or a, any number of things. But you know that that you actually find the landforms for the holes more than you do the greens, and um, you know that's that's particularly uh, I think common in sort of rolling sloping ground. You know you can you can often see a lot of greens uh, on sloping ground that slopes towards you that looks beautiful, and then you get up there and go whoa this thing tilts. It looks so pretty from way back there, and you get up here on and, and it takes to build a green here on this slope with the elevation change from where the front of the green would be to the back. There has to be, you know, considerable amount of work just to make that green function. Those often turn out to be greens too, as Jim said, both with uh, uh, McKenzie and with all of us. We encounter those situations. Those are often greens that, that have quite a bit of movement in them just to make them function. And for me, Derek, it was about working for Pete and his son, Perry. I didn't start building golf courses in beautiful sand dunes of, of Oregon and, and, and other places. I, I started by working for Pete and Perry. And the sites we had were Arizona State University and the TPC at Plum Creek, and uh, working with Rod Whitman down in Texas. So we were guided, as a shaper, I was guided by Pete and his son Perry on the style of green that they wanted. Small, big, undulating, uh, bunkered, uh, turned at an angle. Uh, the, the, the things that Pete and Perry taught me were on green sites that weren't as natural. So I learned how to create uh, form and function and style. And, and I went back and I studied old uh, greens like what McDonald did at uh, the National Golf Links of America and uh, Maxwell did at uh, Prairie Dunes. And so that's how I learned to, for no better term, fabricate a green, create a green, and, and uh, allow it to have some of the nuances uh, of, of uh, putting uh, quadrants and 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 stylistic strategy, but as I got to the chance with Renaissance Golf Design to venture out into beautiful sites like the Pacific Dunes and, and Old Mac, uh, I realized that recapturing what they Mr. Dye had sent me to Scotland years ago, recapturing the essence of the natural contours. That's what made me gravitate to the stuff that Bill and Ben were working on. I was so fascinated by what they were doing with all the pieces of the land they got to work with. But in the beginning, working with Pete and his son, Perry, we were creating. I was shaping what they wanted me to shape, or I was creating my own style based on what they had showed me. Because Pete used to send me, you know, Derek, Pete would send me on the plane, and he'd send me to, to to Palm Springs and he would send me to Old Marsh and he would send me to Pinehurst and he would send me to these places that he wanted to stylize his greens afterwards and that's how I learned how to build them. Here's me, a shaper that had no idea about golf, but he would send me to these places to, to get these ideas. So that's how I started. But thankfully, 
in in the in how I am today, I've had the chance to to morph. And and if I may, did I ask Bill this question? Bill, if in the time from the first time I saw Rockport, and I don't know if a lot of people know about Rockport, but it was one of the first golf courses you did on your arm. From the time of Rockport to your recent job at uh, you and Ben's recent job at Sheep Ranch, has the style of green changed for you? Has it evolved or is it still using the natural ground as your inspiration? Well, Jim, I think it's I think it's pretty much the same. I mean, we've again we've we've tried to be aware of again what we're dealing with, and if it's a site that's uh, reasonably interesting, um, we we try to when it let's just say when it comes to greens, if we find situations that. Uh, appear interesting naturally or more or less naturally on the ground we try to let that guide guide those greens and uh and uh, of course size wise and everything you try to make it fit the type of shots the length of the hole and that sort of thing wind angles but um uh, you know there there are other places that uh even on a good site that you just see and as well, we need a green in this area. There's nothing here. You have to do exactly what you were describing. You have to create a concept and you have to do something that's, that's even though it's going to be created, it fits within the family, so to speak, of the rest of the greens on that course. And we've, um, you know, we've, we've always gravitated toward more natural greens that that flow into their surrounds as opposed to the abrupt, really sharp-edged stuff, although we've done some of that, too, um, besides the greens. But um, we've been pretty much, you know, we've been pretty consistent. We've, um, we, if there's been one change, I would say it's um, within the courses that we've done for Mike Kaiser. And, uh, and of course, Mike Kaiser and Phil Friedman at the Sheep Ranch. Um, but we've probably built greens, although we've always built fairly large greens. Um, we've, we've probably, on their courses, uh, our greens have probably been consistently some, somewhat larger. Because Mike and the Sheep Ranch, Phil, both were very enamored of, of large, large greens, large putting surfaces. So other than that, I'd say no, we've been, we've, you know, I go back and look at greens that we did years ago, and that's pretty neat, or that wasn't bad. And uh, <laughs> they still kind of fit fit together the same way. Yeah. Have you ever done a fall-away green, though? Oh, yeah, lots of them, Jim. Is the lots. ninth at Sheep Ranch considered a fall-away green? Yeah, I would think so. It does it does go, you know, and it goes that way primarily because we set an elevation at the back of the green that was such that the horizon line at the back of the green would match where it looked like it was at the ocean. And uh, if we had to raise the back of the green up enough to so it tilted from back to front, um, then you really would not have seen much of the ocean. So yeah, that's one example. We've We've got quite a few of them, actually. Because I did one for Tom at the Charlotte Golf Links, uh, which no longer exists. I was so, he had given, we had walked Oakmont, and I was so enamored with the fallaway greens at Oakmont that I was going to build 18 fallaway greens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, at the second hole at 
at Charlotte Golf Links. I built a fallaway green, and I fell in love with it because it, it, the land was going away from you. I was just curious if, 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 if fallaway greens were something that you look for or you just wait for it to happen. Well, again, if it's a situation, uh, you know, where it matches beautifully to the to the fairway, to the approach that that leads to it, and the and the natural ground is going, you know, tilting not violently but slightly away from you, yeah, we you know, we we're not we're not uh, afraid to do that at all. I mean, what that does is encourage distance control for shots played to the green. You know, agreed, agreed. You play yep. in the middle of the green, it's going over. You yeah. got to, and of course, then you have to make sure you don't put something like a bunker right in front of the green. <laughs> you yes. Know? Yes. can't do that. But uh, no, we, 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 like you, have been so enamored of Oakmont, which may be the most artistic, interesting greens in America. And, uh, and, but as you said, you're not going to go, you're not going to go do 18 of them. But uh, we've done quite a few. Uh, I remember, I'm going to give you one quick example. There's there's some at Kapalua, the seventh green uh, at Kapalua, since both of you guys referred to that course. Yeah, the seventh it. green is, is like that. It goes, uh, goes you know, away from you. And, uh, and yet it looks like when you're standing in front of the green, it looks like it's pitched way up at the back, like it's coming toward the front significantly. And that's because of the ground it keeps going down as it goes to the ocean, and the ocean in the background, the the way the horizon line of the green and everything's the entire Earth that is falling away from you to the ocean. Even though the green is falling away from you, it appears to be like it's tilted back toward you. It's and it was what it was that it was that one bump. I think you did a bump back left or back right that holds it up that makes it look like it's it's tilted. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember that. Yes. That's great. That's great. You know, Bill, I could talk to you forever, but I know you have other things to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jim. I, I've always enjoyed the conversations we've had through the years. And, uh, uh, Derek, it's it's good to talk to you again. I, I, I wish I were seeing you again down at St. Lucia, but uh, unfortunately, we can't get in there. They're not going to let us in, Derek, for a I while. know. Oh, well, poor <laughs> Keith Reb is is trapped inside the cage right now. I know Keith just texted me uh, just like two minutes before we started this. And said, <laughs> Do you have say, time for get me out of here. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking and I'm thinking, well, I know Keith's got time to chat. That's for sure. <laughs> Jim, Jim, we should we should bring Keith on next time just to give the poor guy something to look forward to. I think I, I think it's such Keith is such a talented guy. I think all the guys that work for Bill and Ben, and you know, to be honest with you. The shapers, the creators, the creative guys, uh, all of those people that help us create these features, Bill would tell you the same thing. Uh, I remember Pete Dye at ASU, uh, a reporter was asking Pete what he thought of the whole, and he says, I don't know, ask the shaper. And <laughs> that's so true. A lot of uh, the creative juices, that's how I started, uh, by shaping. Bill would yeah. say, uh, Keith Reb, I he would say Jimbo, Jim Craig. He would say all of those guys are so yeah. talented to the key of creating these golf courses. Love to talk to him. Yeah, no, no question, Jim. I mean, it's a, uh, the worst thing we could possibly do as golf course designers is think we have all the answers. That's that's guaranteed failure right there. 
So if you're surrounded by talent, take advantage of the talent. Agreed. Well said. Totally agreed. Bill, thanks so much for coming in and talking to Jim, and I really appreciate it. Okay, Derek. Thank you. I really appreciate it as well. Hope to see you guys somewhere before too long. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. All right, there it was. That's Bill Corr. Jim, I think I think we could have gone on for a lot longer than that, but I wanted to. I didn't want to burn our bridges. I hope we can get Bill on and to talk about another subject another time. So we kept it to greens, um, and that was that was plenty deep. I thought that was great. Well, you know what, Derek, the thing that got me that got my attention is that I I was talking about the 14th green, and I was talking about sitting on the hill with Ben Crenshaw, his design partner. And we were watching Bill do his work. And, you know, when you talked about it and we discussed it, what was he thinking that last inch? It's almost like Bill had put himself back onto that green surface 25 years earlier. It was. Like in the moment. Yeah. And I was like, are you kidding me? This guy remembers every little thing. Do you think that's not passion for what I, what he does? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's I think – I, I take it like if if you're focused and you're thinking that deeply and that completely about something and it and I'm sure he thought about that green for weeks who knows how, maybe longer that's not the kind of thing you're going to forget and then you're on there on the machine for hours and hours and hours literally adjusting the very top level the top layer of that I mean it doesn't it, in a way it doesn't surprise me that he remembers that because I feel like that's the commitment and that's the the level of detail that you get when you work with, with Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw. Well, and, and when you shape your own green like Bill does, you remember those difficulties that you were over uh, trying to overcome. And I honestly believe that what he learned from the 14th green at Sandhills probably carried on for two, three, four other designs uh, around the world that where he ran into that same uh, situation and thought, Oh, I remember 14th Sandhills. I do that all the time. You know, I problem solve. I recapture images that I remember doing and, and, and solving with the style of green. And I, um, the way he brought that up about the 14th and remember that I'm convinced that he used that as a, as a way to get out of some predicaments that he may have encountered on other sites uh, with Hill uh, Hill's, coming from top to bottom. Uh, unbelievable. I, I just couldn't believe it. Right. I want to get back to that topic in, in a minute, but I wanted to ask you this. You've spent time on site with Corn Crenshaw. Uh, what, can you have an observation that you can offer about the way Bill and Ben work off each other? It's not something that it, people, uh, very, very few people will get a chance to, to see the dynamics. So I, I thought maybe you could kind of describe what it's, what it's like. I'm sure people are curious. You know, I, I, I do know that each one of them respects each other to, to, the, to the highest level. And it's, it's, it's not like you and I, Derek, uh, if, if I said, Derek, what, what do you think I should we do? We respect each other, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's a good one. We, we do respect each other. But if I asked you, Derek, you know, I'm thinking about this green like this and, and I'm taking this slope and I'm thinking about dumping this bunker right in here and just carving it in. You might say to me, well, you know, I, I'm not familiar or 
you know, remember the green that we did uh, back on in 2006? The way Bill and Ben interact is just unbelievable. Sometimes, and I hope they don't mind me saying this, sometimes they don't even have to talk to each other. Sometimes it's almost like they know what each other is thinking. And one person takes this part of the green or, or Bill takes the other part of the green. But it's almost like they don't even have to talk to each other. They've been around with each other for so long. And they're shapers. They kind of get a sense of what they're thinking. But it's almost like you don't even have to talk. You just have to kind of, as Bill Coor says, drag his foot in the ground or or push away a little bit of sand with his foot. Kind of like what Pete taught me. Just push away a little bit with that hand and, and drag the foot over here and bring this green around here and use this bump here. That's what Bill and Ben have done for years. And it's almost like uh, telepathic in, in, in the way that I've watched them. And it's such a joy to behold. And for the owners who hire them and the people who get to work with them, uh, they're so lucky. And I don't want to overstate state this it's gonna it may sound a little corny but i think what unifies them and the why they're able after all these years to to communicate that way and be so committed is because they treat as we were talking about and we've been talking about they treat the sites they treat the land almost like it's sacred there's such a, a reverence for doing the land justice and they both feel that way to their core i think and it's and so that it becomes a process so they're they're both looking at the process and the project from the same point of view, it starts with the earth and they're saying, what's here? What can we do? What, how, what can we do to honor this piece of land with, with golf holes? And I think if you come at it from that sort of almost philosophical, fundamental philosophical belief that, that the land comes first, then, then you can have this relationship that they've had and you can have the interaction and the common uh, viewpoint on on what should be done and you can kick a little dirt around and kind of <laughs> and that's your way of communicating with your partner yeah quick kicks kick a little dirt around but you know what people are with, witnessing today when they watch bill and ben create their their golf holes their their golf courses i liken it back to what it must have been like for robert hunter and mckenzie working at cypress point or McDonald and Rayner at the National Golf Links of America, or for the Wood Brothers who did all the shaping for Perry Maxwell in Oklahoma and on other sites. It's that interaction between two people that created these golf courses that people are only enjoying that today, which would be similar to what the Golden Age designers did. As I said, Robert Hunter, Alistair McKenzie, uh, Donald Ross, and, and several his, his protégés. But thinking about walking around with McDonald and Rayner in 1909, 1908, as they developed the National Golf Links of America, well, Bill and Ben are just doing that years and years and years later, working off each other to make the best product possible. And we're getting to witness it. We're just sitting here talking looking, playing the new style of golden age design. Could you imagine have gotten uh, CB McDonald on a podcast? <laughs> you would need, you would need two hosts, I think to handle them. You and I could, would have our hands full. 
<laughs> you know what he would have taught? You know what he would have said when we called him? What? What do you want? What, what do you, you want? want? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> who are you? Derek, who are you? Yeah. Jim, who are you? Leave That's me what alone. he would have said to us. <laughs> leave us. Leave me alone. I got to go do something. Yeah. I got important, better, more important things to do. And so how lucky are we to get to talk to Bill? That's it. And, and, and people like, and, you know, and hopefully more people listening and, and, and learning in the modern era, what must have been like back in that day. Yeah, it's a nice time to be able to have these conversations and re record these uh, for the moment and for posterity. Uh, I'm lucky that I get to talk to you. And, I, and there was uh, there were a couple things that I didn't get a chance to bring up and, and direct it toward you while we had Bill on. So I'll ask them to you now. Uh, you spoke about the 16th green of Pacific Dunes and how it was just a natural green site and you found it and it was just so, so right. I asked Bill this, now I'm going to ask you, was there a particular green that you remember or a particular project with, with mini greens that you found really difficult? You were wrestled with them. You couldn't quite get it right. A, 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 a green or a place where you, you really struggled to, to get the greens in the place where you knew they needed to be. Very few, because as I say, I've been very lucky to work on some unbelievable sites with Tom, but I could think of one example, and it's 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 relatively easy because it's kind of weird in a way. It's it's a green site at Sabonic Golf Club. It's the sixth hole. It's a downhill shot to a green that's uh, that's into a hillside, pretty steep hillside. And while we were waiting for the shapers to show up to start creating and and, and building. Uh, Sabonic Golf Club. Uh, I was out there by myself, and I was marking trees for some clearing and and putting out some grassing lines and and just waiting for for the rest of the crew to show up. Rest of the shapers, very talented shapers, to show up. And I saw this green site that I knew we were going to have difficulty getting in there, uh, the sixth green at Sabonic. And you know where I drew my inspiration from? It's amazing. I built a green like the ninth hole at Old Town Golf Club mm -hmm. or the second green at the Prairie Dunes Club. It was a slanted topography. I knew that if I could muscle in a couple inside rolls, what I call the Maxwell inside rolls, and then I could get a left greenside bunker to hold up the left edge of the green, then I was going to be able to eat up the slope, much like Mackenzie did at the 16th Apostle Temple or the 18th Apostle Temple. But I, I relied on style of architecture that I remember looking at, something that I really enjoyed uh, 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 playing and putting on. And when I got to the sixth hole at Sabonic, I just thought, a couple inside rolls, a couple Maxwell inside rolls, a left green side bunker that would hold up the surface. And by the time that Mr. Pascucci, uh, Jack Nicholas, and Tom had walked around the site and saw the green that I had shaped in there waiting for everybody to show up, uh, that green never got changed. And all of the rocks through and all of the walkthroughs, the sixth green at Sabonic never got changed. 
Now, other greens got adjusted ever so slightly, and, and Jack did some of his magic on, on some of the greens, and Tom said, uh, did some of his magic on, on some of his greens. But the sixth green never got touched. People realized it was a, a, a kind of a slope from back to front, and I, and I conjured up Perry Maxwell mm -hmm. to, get me out of my, <laughs> to get me out of my situation, <laughs> and it ended up staying there forever. Have you ever played the sixth at Sabonic? I have not. It's pretty cool. I'm I'm very happy with it, uh, and it got the it got reviewed by all of the all of the main players uh, at uh, at Sabonic, and 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 it, and it survived. and And I still thank Perry Maxwell today. So you just brought up an example of how you were stuck, or uh, for lack of a better word, and you you summoned your knowledge. You you went into the past and grabbed something, but it was kind of. In the moment, in during the process, once you got to this stalled point, that's when you reached for it. Bill has said this, and he, I, I've heard him quote this before. Uh, he quotes our friend Rod Whitman, whose famous line is, when he goes to a, a, a property, a, a piece of land, a landscape that's going to be a golf course, he says, I look, but I do not see. So, And, and I always took the, the sentiment behind that to mean he has a completely blank mind. He's, he, he's not projecting anything out onto the land. He's letting the land speak to him. He's letting the land sing its own song and in its own way. And, and that's, I think, what Bill and Ben do, and that's why they become so successful, as, as we've been talking about. But a lot of designers uh, don't do that. They either have a style or they, they go and they see a property and they, they just instinctively, whether they maybe they want to or maybe they just do it out of instinct, they see their own holes and their, their own process and their own project being projected onto that land. You went into the past and pulled out Maxwell, but it was only when you needed to. But how hard is that to do to, to look at a, a raw property and to not see it or to look, but as Whitman says, but do not see you know, sometimes you can't rush the walk around. You can't rush an idea. And I do know that on several occasions, while I shaped a green or while I watched other shapers shape a green, that you give it your best effort and you realize it just didn't work. And so luckily you have the ability to just erase it with your bulldozer or your excavator and start again. And so in that point where I was walking around looking at sites, looking at green sites, you know, I didn't really think about it. A lot of architects don't think about it. They realize that you know we have the machinery, we have the technology. We'll just we'll just uh, I say uh, muscle something in there, jazz it up, as Pete used to tell me. Mm -hmm. We could just jazz that green up a little bit. And so I think Rod has it right. You 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 have to keep looking. You can't just rush into it. Uh, don't force yourself to work on a green that you don't feel is 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 solid in your mind. Go work on something else. Go work on another part of the uh, the project and, and then just come back at it uh, maybe a day later or two days later and, and maybe it'll come to you. And watching Rod work, I watched Rod work up at uh, uh, Cabot uh, Links in, uh, in Nova Scotia. I went up there twice 
and so loved the work that Rod did up there. You know, he he's he's meticulous. He's he's he works with it. He looks at it. He goes back and stands in the fairway. He comes back at it. He works at it again. And I think that's the process. I don't think you could rush it. I don't think you should uh, try to force something in there. I think you should look at it. But sometimes you don't see it the first time. You'll see it the second time. And, and if I've heard correctly, he's not <laughs> opposed to, after looking at it the second time, taking the bulldozer and doing what you just said and wiping it out and starting all over again. Well, I know that I've done that before. I have never saw I've never saw Rod completely start over, but I started over. Yeah, because I just I just realized that, and especially you know when I've started over, when somebody comes by, maybe another shaper. Uh, I'll tell you what. There's a very talented guy that works for Renaissance Golf Design. His name's Brian Slonick. One time he came over to Pacific Dunes and he was just watching me build a, a green, and I remember him just kind of looking at it. And and I could tell that he, he wasn't liking it, <laughs> and he didn't have to say anything. And I and I just kept playing with it and got on the sand pro and worked it a little bit more. Sometimes you don't need anybody to say that looks stupid. You just look at their eyes and mm-hmm. say they're not liking this, and, and maybe I should look at it twice. So I've never seen Rod redo a green completely, but I have never been afraid to do it if when. <laughs> The, the person walking up to the green looks at it and gives it the sour face. I'm thinking, man, maybe I don't have this right. But you know what the cool thing is? When you do it yourself, you just get on the back on the bulldozer and do it again. That's not that hard. This makes me think of another line of this conversation that we're going to definitely save for another time, but that's the whole concept of USGA greens and whether what you're talking about is compatible on on heavy soils when you have to you know layer greens and think about internal drainage and all that. But um, <laughs> that's a whole can of worms, and, and I think we should leave that for another t- another discussion. All right, we'll do that. <laughs> Good. Yeah, you're like I don't want to I don't want to touch that. Good. So I'm I'm done. <laughs> that's a great idea, Derek. Let's move on. Well, let's be done with this one. That was a that was a good talk. Thanks to Bill Cor for coming on. Jim, it was always great to talk to you, and uh, we're going to do this again soon. Thank you, Derek. A, a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of fun. That's all I can say. Absolutely. All right. Cheers, everyone. Mm-hmm.